Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Museums today give the painter Jacques-Louis David, 1748-1825, the same preeminent recognition that he enjoyed during his lifetime as the creator of a commanding neoclassical style and a persuasive Napoleonic imagery. For about a century after his death, however, he was mostly rebuked by collectors and critics. In this lecture held on June 11, 2017, in conjunction with the exhibition America Collects 18th Century French Painting at the National Gallery of Art, Philippe Boad, Professor Emeritus of Art History, Université Lyon, accounts for these dramatic shifts in taste and perception. Boad explains that it is necessary to invoke changing attitudes toward the prestige of antique models and toward an artist whose political concerns found expression in his works. Often at stake were fundamental debates as to what made a work of art attractive and how to construct a history of 18th century French painting. The highs and lows of the critical reception of David's paintings are a reminder that our own perceptions are bound to evolve over time. Bringing together 68 paintings that represent some of the best and most unusual examples of French art of that era held by American museums, America Collects 18th Century French Painting is on view from May 21st through August 20th, 2017. David's self-portrait on the screen prompts me to remind you that he was born in 1748 in Paris and died in 1825 in Brussels, that he was a painter with an 18th century background and a 19th century posterity. The self-portrait in the collection of the Louvre dates from 1794, right in the halftime pause of his career, a forced pause since he found himself under arrest and in prison, on account of his political activities during the most repressive months of the French Revolution called the Terror. 12 years ago, as you heard, I had the privilege to curate for the Getty Museum and the Clark Art Institute an exhibition of the paintings and drawings that David produced in the aftermath of the French Revolution. The idea was to focus on the latter part of his career, his work for Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte during the consulate and the empire, and his lesser known activity during his exile in Brussels from 1816 until his death in 1825. The aim of the exhibition was to demonstrate that like French society and politics, he embarked on a distinct, distinctly new path after the revolution. For the organizing museums, it was very important to secure the loan of the portrait of Napoleon in the collection of the National Gallery of Art. A private commission that let David imagine the emperor working through the night in his study at the Tuileries Palace. As is clear from the staging of the portrait, the painter understood that times had changed for he chose not to represent Napoleon on his throne in the manner of Ancien Regime monarchs. In response to the request for the loan, the administration of the National Gallery informed the Getty Museum and the Clark that the painting was on a short list of exceptionally important works in the collection, lent out only with great reluctance, and it took much persuasion to arrive at a happy end. My point is simply to suggest to you the very high esteem given to David's painting, probably even greater today than when it was gifted to the gallery by the Samuel H. Crest Foundation in 1961, after its acquisition seven years earlier from the famous firm of Wildenstein and Company. That David's 1813 portrait of his wife, bought by the Crest Foundation from another dealer, entered the collection with the same gift, suggests that by the middle of the 20th century, the painter's reputation was on the upswing. This afternoon, I would like to go much further back in time and invoke rather the moment it started to go downhill. This took place toward the end of his career, not because his creative powers were on the wane, demonstration of the opposite was just the point of the exhibition mounted in 2005, but because some talented, talented younger painters, the so-called romantic generation, turned their back on the principles that had long guided his practice and his teaching in order to explore other modes of pictorial expression. The critical discourse that justified this depreciation for his works, 
like the positive arguments that in the early 20th century restored a liking for them, are not simply of interest as historiographic curiosities and anecdotes. Taken synchronically, they reveal shared period taste, a significant cultural phenomenon that needs to be accounted for. Considered diachronically as a chain of contradictory and competing discourses, they bring into historical focus the, characteristic, the characteristics of David's arts, his goals, and his achievements. With regard to perception of his works today, by nourishing our understanding, they can help establish our own personal opinion. The insightful British art historian Francis Haskell, who passed away in 2000, is credited with establishing the history of taste as a research domain in its own right, a pursuit that has engendered specialized journals, countless books, and a number of exhibitions, such as the one presently at the National Gallery. Some 40 years ago, Haskell edited a series of lectures entitled Rediscoveries in Art, Some Aspects of Taste, Fashion, and Collecting in England and France. In the introduction, he mused on the subject. I quote, variations in artistic taste constitute not only a problem, but a disquieting one. He found some consolation in that he writes, for no extended periods since their lifetime have Raphael, Titian, and Rubens not been considered great painters by the most influential sections of articulate opinion." End of quote. That the stability of opinion with regard to the great masters should rest only on a few enlightened minds, those he designates as the most influential sections of articulate opinion, betrays the anxiety of the Oxford professor. I am certain that there are art lovers who have no influence on the opinions of others, who perhaps are not very articulate in expressing themselves, who do not dare to speak their mind given the weight and credit of institutional and specialist authorities, but who may feel that Raphael's pictures are too dry and stiff for their enjoyment, Titian's too dark and rough, and Rubens is too splashy and emphatic. Even at these very high altitudes, it remains a matter of taste. For my part, perhaps for my generation, impacted by the critical discourses of the late 1960s and the 1970s, the relativity of taste that bothers Haskell is less a preoccupation than how, text, how taste is indexed on class distinction its social predictability. And for the millennial generation, the individuality of taste is hardly a problem. On the contrary, it is perceived as a goal. In April 2015, an art activist called upon the Obama administration to, I quote, remove all of the liter literally awful Renoir paintings hanging in the National Gallery in Washington. The petition needed 100,000 signatures to warrant White House consideration. It garnered only 15 and fell flat, though it was followed by some small demonstrations in October of that year. The initiative was obviously jokey and performative, yet as some cultural critics recognized, it made the broader point about what constitutes art and who gets to decide what is exhibited in museums, what is illustrated in textbooks, edited as posters, and allotted value on the art market. Haskell expressed his anxiety by invoking two artists he placed at the top of his personal pantheon. He wondered whether their high reputation would last since they had been neglected for so much longer than they had been admired. I quote him, will a future generation be unmoved by Piero della Francesca and Vermeer. On the basis of the recent anti-Renoir agitation and the added value given to individualist postures, one wonders if it is plausible that some museum visitors today might, might not only be indifferent to their works, but revulsed by it. Haskell admits the possibility of a reversal of fortune, 
I quote him, nor can it be assumed that once a painter has been recovered from oblivion, he cannot, as it were, be lost again. What he means is that some artists might indeed one day have to relinquish their star status. However, it seems to me that the terms of the situations he evokes have changed in the 40 years since he wrote this. Just as historians have become skeptical of any philosophy of history, art historians have moved away from focusing on a pantheon of great artists. In this respect, they have parted ways from the broader audience whose news feed concerns an increasingly select number of old masters and essentially the estimated pecuniary value of their work. From the viewpoint of art history, some artists are undeniably greater than others. Their ambitions and achievements are unquestionably more impressive. No doubt Haskell's pantheon will continue to shine brightly and to find willing adulators among art historians, but for many today, the most exciting scholarly research and sometimes even museum acquisitions lie beyond this narrow podium. Haskell's pioneering book treats changes in taste roughly from 1790 to 1870. The rediscoveries in the title concern mainly Dutch and Spanish 17th century masters and 18th century French painters, many of whom Americans collected with enthusiasm, as the current exhibition demonstrates. Haskell was not particularly interested in the critical fortune of Jacques-Louis David, except to the extent that his rise in the 1780s contributed to the disaffection for that diverse group of painters, Watteau, Lemoyne, Boucher, Fragonard, whose paintings tend to be designated as Rococo, a terminological shortcut I shall take since their work is not my subject today. David's towering reputation during his active life, roughly from the 1780s to the early 1820s, may be one reason why Haskell probably does not focus on him. To be rediscovered, one, has, one must be forgotten, a fate that never really befell David. Another reason is suggested by Haskell's concession that possession, I quote him, possession and hence by definition financial interest plays a considerable role in the process under investigation. David painted less than 150 works and put his energy and talent, above all, in large-scale formats requiring several years of work and destined for public spaces, princely palaces and galleries, assembly halls, and above all, the museum. The very high prices he could command during his lifetime for cabinet pictures and portraits, boosted by aristocratic patronage before the revolution and later by his appointment as first painter to Napoleon, proved unsustainable after his death. Worth noting, however, is the easy access to his paintings in Paris after his exile to Brussels in 1816. His move to Belgium was more exactly a self-exile, for it was the consequence of his refusal to beg pardon for all his revolutionary sins, for his friendship with Marat and Robespierre, his membership on the committee responsible for political arrest during the terror, and especially his vote as deputy in favor of the death sentence for Louis XVI, brother to the restored Bourbon monarch. From 1818, in the newly opened Galerie Royale du Luxembourg, committed to works by living artists, the antechamber to the Louvre, as it has been called, visitors could see two of his major pictures, The Oath of the Horatii and Brutus, along with the reduced version of Belisarius. Shortly after, a private collector lent The Death of Socrates, the painting today in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, about which I will say much more later. In 1819, through the mediation of one of his former pupils, the Bourbon government acquired from him the intervention of the Sabines and Leonidas at Thermopylae that were immediately hung with the other pictures. The king's younger brother, the Comte d'Artois, gave the loves of Paris and Helen in 1823. 
Of course, the Napoleonic scenes and portraits were hidden away, but this selection of paintings offered a remarkably accurate demonstration of the pictorial vision that had defined the French school between 1785 and 1814. And just a few weeks after David's death in 1825, the transfer to the Louvre of the six canvases belonging to the state ensured that he would not be forgotten. Indeed, the year following his death, the government acquired the portrait of Juliette Recamier he had left unfinished in 1800 on account of what he judged to be her capriciousness. Around 1810, at the height of his reputation during the empire, friends and supporters of David promoted the notion that the contemporary French school was synonymous with the appellation School of David, École de David. This referred indiscriminately not only to the several hundred artists who had paid a monthly fee to profit, to profit from his guidance, but also to any living artist who appeared to take his cue from an antique sculpture in order to discard the French manor, as it was called, or what today we call the Rococo. But just as the master was celebrated for regenerating the French school, a young critic, François Guizot, broke ranks and in a review of the Paris Salon of 1810, denounced the scenes from Greek and Roman history as full of figures that resembled lifeless painted statues. This negative perception gained considerable momentum after 1815 during the Restoration. By then, the heroic fantasy that had led the elite instigators of the French Revolution to identify with the neoclassical style was dead. Study of antique statuary was mostly confined to the training studios of the newly christened, christened École des Beaux-Arts. Pierre-Simon Ballanche, an influential Christian philosopher close to Chateaubriand, in his essay on social institutions in relation to new ideas, published in 1818, condemned the focus on the nude in painting and declared solemnly that the antique had led the French astray. I quote him, the romantic genius and the picturesque genius are two brothers who have just succeeded to the statuary genius and the classical genius aged monarchs whose ashes we should still honor, though we no longer live by their laws. In short, classical genius is outworn like all other traditions. It has imbued the realm of the imagination with all the ideas and sentiments it had to offer. Its mission is over. This theme of exhaustion recurs in the review of the Salon of 1824 by Stendhal with his memorable observation, the school of David is able to paint only bodies. It is decidedly incompetent to paint souls. David's revolutionary activism further adumbrated perception of his work. In 1824, his family and friends in Paris mounted an exhibition of the painting Mars Disarmed by Venus and the Graces he sent from Brussels. They accompanied, they accompanied it by an apologetic notice on the life and works of Jacques-Louis David. As Daniel Harkett has shown, the aim was to characterize his life, I quote him, as art-centered and his work as a normative expression of formal artistic principles. In other words, the strategy was to extract him from his tumultuous times to lead him through the doors of the museum with the aid of this scene of amorous mythology that appeared to revive just the kind of pleasing subjects against which he had battled in the 1780s. The royalist press, however, was not duped, and one, crit one critic commented ironically that the new picture, I quote, was painted with the same brush that painted the death of Marat with such patriotic energy and friendly zeal. These two polemical scores, David's artistic legacy and his political reputation, in need of settlement during the Restoration, had already surfaced during the Salon of 1819. 
One of his pupils, Alexandre Abel de Pujol, exhibited a huge canvas, a royal government commission destined for the ceiling of the entrance staircase of the Royal Museum in the Louvre. It was an allegorical celebration of the renaissance of the arts in France, with the genius of the fine arts helping painting, sculpture, architecture, and engraving come out of darkness. The composition should have ruffled no feathers except for one detail. The large metal plate held by the allegory of engraving bore a reproduction of David's Oath of the Horatii. According to the claim made by Abel de Pujol in the Salon Brochure, it was, I quote him, the first masterpiece that brought the French school back to the purity of the antique. Charles Landon, a, modern, a moderate critic, observed that the Renaissance in the title of the painting pointed rather in the direction of Italy, and that in France, François Ier had played a major role at the beginning of the 16th century. He added that several artists during the 17th century had been illustrious, also that the teaching of Joseph-Marie Vien, David's master, had first put the French school back on the right track after half a century of corrupted taste. And finally, he observed that Jean-Baptiste Regnault had painted an education of Achilles in the pure spirit of the antique two years before the oath of the Horatii. In sum, Landon argued that the implicit art historical narrative and explicit homage to David's painting was nothing less than, I quote, a kind of anticipated apotheosis of its author, whose name is not one, once mentioned by Landon in his review. Landon judged that this was on the part of a pupil an understandable show of respect toward his master, but totally out of place in a public commission, contemptuous of both truth and decorum. Far more virulent was another critic, the Comte Arthur O'Mahony, whose reaction Beth Wright has highlighted in her study of David's continuing presence in restoration art criticism. The title of the journal that published O'Mahony's article, Le Conservateur, prepares us for the, his reaction of outrage when he discovered the homage paid to the exiled painter of the Oath of the Horatii by Abel de Pujol. Even more strongly than Landon, he insisted on the role of François Ier, perhaps recollecting the picture that Anissé Charles Lemonnier had sent to the first restoration salon in 1814. O'Mahony was flabbergasted that instead of celebrating this glorious epic he qualified as so French, Abel de Pujol had retained, I quote, the deplorable idea of uniting the renaissance of the arts and the birth of the terror on the ceiling of the Louvre, thus suspending above the heads of our kings the apotheosis of a regicide painter. For him, the allegory of liberty that watched protectively over the scene, along with the seated figures of truth, peace, and commerce, was none other than the one championed by the Bonapartist and Republican opposition, what he calls the liberty of 21st January 1793, an allusion to the execution of Louis XVI. Conservative critics and connoisseurs invoked David's checkered political career to stigmatize his style, the tyranny of reason over imagination that they detected in the austere statements of neoclassical painting. As an alternative to the visual rhetoric of David, judged pompous and grandiloquent, many promoted the art of his contemporary, Pierre-Paul Prudhon, often allegorical and running the gamut of expression from the delicately sensuous to the powerfully dramatic. On the screen is the most important painting by Proudhon in America, whose date around 1793, the most violent moment of the French Revolution, might surprise you. Unlike David, Proudhon was deemed to have ensured a smooth transition between the Rococo and Romanticism and to have succeeded in keeping revolutionary politics at a distance from the arts. 
The concern for a specifically French tradition, a trend that affected even David in exile, as I mentioned, led to the rediscovery and a new appreciation of the Rococo masters and Petit Maître he had degraded. The capacity of David's work to survive as icons of the classical spirit and academic teaching through these decades of denigration and disaffection can be apprehended by considering three programmatic caricatures from 1816, 1827, and 1855. They further suggest the complexity and volatility of the successive artistic contexts through which his style was perceived. Of the earliest one on the screen, an anonymous lithograph, only a few copies are preserved, including one bearing the annotation, bad taste attempting to introduce itself in David's studio. And there is, in fact, a uh, caricature of David here, or uh, uh, on, this, on this block, so suggesting, I mean, confirming it is David's studio. On the left, a painter in Ancien Régime court attire with his palette cuts an effeminate figure, assailed by a group of virile young men ready to throw at him whatever they can grab. Even some of the antique figures come alive to participate in the brawl. Though they adopt academic poses, the young men are in contemporary clothes. As in the work of Théodore Géricault and other painters from around these years, the draftsman convokes and attempts to reconcile contemporary life and the classical ideal in response to the menace of a revival of Ancien Régime culture and in painting the French manner that the Bourbon Restoration represented. The central warrior in the composition is, of course, a reprise of the figure of Romulus from David's intervention of the Sabine women. The same nude, revised perhaps by the influence of Ang, inspires another anonymous lithograph relative to the Salon of 1827, the great combat between the Romantic and the Classicist at the door of the museum. The Romantic champions the Gothic, while the Classicist remains faith a faithful partisan of the antique. Whereas the incarnation of the classical tradition seems to preserve its vigor here, this is not the case in 1855, when Honoré Daumier transformed David's academic prototype into a bespectacled weakling, a musty professor of the École des Beaux-Arts, who must now confront a brash and somewhat rustic member of the realist school. In 1855, the year Daumier drew his caricature, also saw the publication of a monograph that marked the beginning of a more positive appreciation of David's life, art, and influence. Étienne Jean de Lécluse, who had been an assiduous pupil in the master's studio around 1800, and who had become an influential art critic with conservative positions, published Louis David, His School and His Times. On the screen is a portrait drawing of Delecluze by Ang, who also pays homage to his former master by placing the book in evidence on the table. In the introduction, Delecluze indicates that he had finished his manuscript 20 years earlier and explains why he waited so long to get it in print. I quote him, above all, it has always been out of expectation for the right moment when I might find a public inclined to welcome the history of Louis David and his school. The admiration for the works of this illustrious artist was so exclusive up to the time of his death, and then during the 15 or 16 years that followed his exile, they were criticized and even denigrated with so much violence and injustice that it seemed to me necessary to wait until the passage of time had quieted the effervescence of these contrary positions, passions. Referring here, of course, to the revolt of the Romantic generation against a manner of painting, Judge Grandiloquent and Contrived. Delecluse esteemed that the time had come for a more detached look at the artist and his works. 
Though he did not pass over David's revolutionary activities as painter and politician, he minimized their import as if they had been an unfortunate hitch in an otherwise prestigious career. This milestone was followed by the monumental monograph by David's grandson, Jules David, in 1880. Complemented the following year by a copious set of prints after his paintings and drawings, as well as by the 1913 Paris exhibition at the Palais des Beaux-Arts, today the Petit Palais, of David and his pupils. This signaled the dawn of an appreciation that extended to his entourage. Though David's historical compositions were still considered with disdain, his early portraits were reappraised favorably for their freshness and immediacy. Many felt the appeal of Jacques-François de Maison, the portrait of the artist's uncle painted in 1782, lent in 1913 by the prominent collector David David Veil, and illustrated as the frontispiece of the catalogue, a painting that you can admire in the America Collects exhibition. Notwithstanding the inherent financial risk, some French dealers sensed that this was the time to bank on the revival of interest in David's portraits. So paintings began to cross the Atlantic, embellished by an attribution to this most famous painter of his day. Exhibitions were organized and laudatory articles commissioned to create an audience for this new taste. The most significant commercial operation to establish David among the desirable old masters in America took place in 1918. That year, Edward Julius Berwind, a coal mining baron with ties to J. Pierpont Morgan, bought two paintings from the Gimple and Wildenstein galleries in New York. The firm's Alsatian owners had settled in the United States to promote French 18th century masters and dethroned the prevailing taste of rich collectors for British painting. Berwin's first selection was Fragonard's The Two Sisters, today in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum, acquired for almost $200,000. Less expected, however, was Berwin's second acquisition for a comparable sum, a work that Gimple claimed in his private journal to be le plus beau David du monde, the most beautiful David in the world. A portrait of a woman with a child then unanimously thought to be by David, but today recognized as the painting exhibited by his pupil, Marie-Guilhelmine Benoit at the Salon of 1802. In a clear ploy to assure Berwin that he had made a fine acquisition, Gimple asked Henri Carreau Delvaille, a French painter established in New York, whose work he presented in his gallery, to write an article praising David and especially Berwin's new portrait. The text, simply titled Jacques-Louis David, appeared in the June 1919 issue of Art in America. Caro Delvaille begins by evoking his most celebrated history paintings. If we analyze the first revelations of this master, we will find them academic, scholastic, but sustained by a creative strength which is never abandoned. There is, in the effort which dominates his work, something of fierceness which attains to a stoic stoical power, power which is conserved by the reading of Plutarch or the study of the Romulus or the Brutus of antique statuary." End of quote. This stress on the virility and the forceful impact of David's historical compositions was balanced by exaltation of his portraits and especially Berwin's acquisition, which allowed Carreau Delvaille to besmirch its British counterparts. I quote him again. The figure has a purity of line which recalls Greek art, but re Greek art recreated in the flesh and spirit by a lover of form. When you compare this accomplished work with the formless and manneristic English portraits of the same period, you do not hesitate to rank David as the greatest master of plastic beauty. It is altogether feminine seduction, 
the silvery radiation which issues from its exquisite flesh tones, the suppleness and abandon of the pose, combined to make a really picturesque masterpiece stripped of all pedantry. This portrait is among the highest expressions of French art. How many such examples of discipline and free effusion are there to recompense us in our troubled epic? End of quote. This last remark alludes to the uncertain cultural climate in post-war Europe. While the term plastic beauty resonates like an avant-garde code word for the so-called retour à l'ordre, the return to order, that in the arts reinstated Fouquet, the Clouet, Poussin, David, and Ingres as visual signposts for the task of reconstruction. Caro Delvaille links David's art to this classicizing renaissance by insisting on the preeminence of form in the portrait, but he is also careful to describe the artist's manner as imbued with the freshness and sensuousness commonly hailed as the hallmark of 18th century French painting. In these early years of the 20th century, paintings that were French and distinctively alantique were commonly ascribed and with confidence to David. The capacity to recognize a recurrent characteristic of the period style produced the acculturation and connoisseurship necessary to advocate a taste for these moody fashion icons. In 1903, the New York collector Grenville Winthrop bought such a portrait of a wistful young woman in a high-waisted white dress against an empty monochrome background. Today, the washed out quality of the execution strikes us as, peculi strikes us peculiarly alien to David's sense of form and color. This is the picture on the left. Closer to the master's manner, another unidentified young woman in white sold at auction in 1930 as a portrait of the directoire beauty Fortuné Hamelin by David caught the eye of Chester Dale, who in 1963 presented it with his collection to the National Gallery of Art. Some of the urgency and excitement surrounding the chase for portraits by David, in this case the prize was a painting with two male sitters, is explicit in the exclamation of the Philadelphia collector Henry McKillany when his agent in France, Martin Birnbaum, was able to buy the 1930, in 1936 the panel of the portrait of Pius VII and Cardinal Caprara, painted around 1805 in conjunction with the coronation of Napoleon. I quote McKillany, naturally I feel triumphant that the David has been captured and I am terribly keen to have it in Philadelphia. Birnbaum, his agent, with a more discriminating eye than most dealers and middlemen in his day, had laid out his strategy to the collector a few months earlier. I have for many years been hunting for pictures by David, real ones recorded in his grandson's monumental work. Nurturing a desire for neoclassical history painting by David, however, was a different matter. At the beginning of the 20th century, it required a certain degree of art historical acumen and independence to perceive in them some sort of appeal given the recurrent criticism of these works as lifeless and cold. A typical critique was expressed by the influential formalist critic and theorist Roger Fry. In a lecture delivered in 1917 and edited three years later titled Art and Life, arguing that art followed its own pace with regard to history and society, Fried reviewed epical trends from antiquity to his times, Admittedly, I quote him, a violently foreshortened view of history and art. Nonetheless, his remarks attest to a prejudice shared by his contemporaries. And I quote him, it's the quote on the screen. In the 18th century, we get a curious phenomenon. Art goes to court, identifies itself closely with a small aristocratic clique, becomes the exponent of their manners and their tastes. It becomes a luxury. It is no longer the mainstream of spiritual and intellectual effort. And this seclusion of art may account for the fact that the next great change in life, 
the French Revolution and all its accompanying intellectual ferment finds no serious correspondence in art. We get a change, it is true. The French Republicans believed that they were the counterpart of the Romans, and so David had to invent for them that peculiarly distressing type of the ancient Roman, always in heroic attitude, always immaculate, spotless, and with a highly polished Madame Tussaud surface. Fry's unflattering conclusion refers to the deadpan waxwork figures, a popular public entertainment on the eve of the revolution and after. These wax figure showrooms in Paris and later in London presented the effigies of famous figures, philosophes such as Voltaire, Rousseau, and Franklin, and later of purported villains such as Marat and Robespierre. Here, Fry aims to oust David's paintings from the realm of high art. One who was able to surmount such prejudices was Bryson Burroughs. He had been curatorial assistant to Roger Fry at the Metropolitan Museum and became curator of paintings in 1909. At the same time, a practicing painter, he had studied in Cincinnati and New York, capped by five years in Paris at the Académie Julian under the guidance of Pierre Cuvier de Chavannes. Until his death in 1934, he painted mythological and pastoral subjects in settings strongly reminiscent of the Arcadian compositions of his French mentor, Puvis. Though his acquisitions for the Metropolitan Museum do not indicate a taste that was exclusive, his search for harmony in his own work surely made him receptive to the ideal forms that distinguish classicizing works of art. In July 1931, Burroughs published a revised catalog of paintings in the Metropolitan Museum. One can read his fascination for the disciplined neoclassical style in the relatively long description he devoted to Charlotte Duval d'Ogne, still another portrait of a woman in white bequeathed to the museum as a David in 1917 a Wildenstein find in France that had been purchased by a New York collector a few years before, and today is ascribed, as you can read, to Marie-Denise Villers. In his catalog entry, Burroughs dwelled, dwelt upon the austere gray background and the lunar glow of the picture. That same year, 1931, Burroughs was contacted by Walter Pack an American artist, writer, art advisor, and private dealer active on the contemporary art scene in both New York and Paris ever since his first visit to the French capital in 1903. In 1913, Pack played a major role in organizing the famous Armory Show in New York. On 20th of January, 1931, from Paris, in the wake of a failed initiative concerning a Pontormo that turned out to be, I quote him, no museum picture, he wrote to Burroughs, I have now stumbled on one that is surely that, and though I am not going into picture hunting as a practice, I thought I should send you the photograph of this David. It is his Socrates receiving the hemlock of the Salon of 1787. He provided information on the owners, they want to sell it only so as to divide an estate and not to make money as they are very rich. The price is $18,000. Remember the 200000 for the portrait. The stock market crash of 1929 may explain the particularly low sum. In a follow-up letter, Pack added that the museum in Stockholm had expressed interest in the painting. Burroughs responded with unrepressed enthusiasm and reported promptly to the acting director and the Committee on Purchases of the Metropolitan in the hope that they might approve the acquisition sight unseen on the combined basis of the photograph, Pack's recommendation, and the following argument. I quote Burroughs. The death of Socrates by David can appropriately be bought out of the Wolf Fund, as David is recognized as the first of the modern school and the, as the founder of modern art. No artist since the Renaissance has had so lasting an effect as David has had. Indeed, his influence survives today. A long-lasting influence is a tangible proof of greatness. 
as far as an historical collection like ours is concerned. This picture is one of his most famous works, the only one of his great compositions, as far as I know, which remains in still private hands. These elaborate compositions of his are not widely appreciated today, which accounts for the low price of the Socrates, whereas his portraits, which he himself regarded as mere pastimes, are eagerly sought after. Though the case was perfectly made, the trustees demanded to see the painting to make their decision. In a later letter from Pack to Burroughs, we learned that he managed with great difficulty con to convince the owners to send the picture to New York, though they had refused to send it to Stockholm for inspection. He expected no trouble during the review by French customs that gave, I quote, the Louvre a chance to purchase it, which they won't do, or the other French museums either, they could have done so before, end of quote. Indeed, in France, respected art historians and other establishment figures who weighed in on museum acquisitions continued to frown upon David's historical compositions, already very well represented in the Louvre collection, as we have seen. In the same letter, Pack expresses his growing enthusiasm for David and his descendants, as he calls them. Yet he thought it necessary to brace the New York buyers for the impression the Socrates would likely make on them, since Richard Cantinelli, author of the most recent monograph on David published the previous year, had used, I quote Pack, some such, some such expression as cold and licked in discussing the picture. And this is Pack continues, but the color is steely in the grays and pink in the flesh, somewhat as in the Paris and Helen of the Louvre, a work of the same period, but not even distantly comparable to the grandeur of ours, as I call it, I hope not prematurely. Sensitive foremost to contemporary concerns about formal rigor, Pack added, did you notice, by the way, the likeness of the block of stone to the one in the Marat of David? That latter piece of geometry always seemed to me a piece of sheer genius. On the last day of March 1931, probably just upon obtaining approval from the trustees, Burroughs cabled in full capitals to pack in Paris, just three words, David bought hooray. <laughs> He detailed his satisfaction by letter a couple of weeks later, and I think if you ask me that it's about the swellest picture we have acquired for a long time, such marvelous science in such condition. Several months later, he was thrilled to report to Pack, the David has enormous success and looks grand. We bless you for it. Burroughs drafted a remarkably thoughtful article revealing the new acquisition for the June 1931 issue of the Metropolitan Museum Bulletin. It was a direct rebuttal to criticism of the painting two years earlier in Art in America by Wilhelm Valentiner, the prestigious and scholarly director of the Detroit Institute of Arts, who had worked with Wilhelm von Bode in Berlin and had written, the composition is too studied, it lacks feeling. In his article, Valentiner nonetheless stressed the resonance of David's art with contemporary concern. I quote Valentiner, David was not a genius of the highest order as, as was Watteau, but to those of us sensitive to the forces underlying our own times, it says, or should say, more than pre-revolutionary art. Referring again to the death of Socrates, Valentiner added, why is it that David's great historical compositions are apt to leave us cold, especially those produced during the period of great spiritual and political turmoil in which his own sympathies were greatly involved? Valentiner could not see the connection between the classical style of David and the revolutionary moment. I quote him again. It is impossible for a significant realistic art to develop during war and revolution. When, as now in our days, reality weighs all too heavily upon us, art in self-defense becomes abstract and withdraws from reality. It is for this reason that the art of the revolution, David's art was stylized and cool. The artist perforce took refuge from the horrors of reality in the kingdom of his imagination." End of quote. 
Apparently, Valentina was unaware of Marx's penetrating remarks on the bourgeoisie's need for antique trappings to muster the energy and courage to accomplish the revolution of 1789. In his Metropolitan Museum Bulletin article defending the acquisition of the death of Socrates, Burroughs began by pointing out what made the artist so special. All works of art, of course, will reveal the particulars of the civilization they proceed from. But since the Renaissance, when pictures began to be looked at upon, to be looked upon as finalities in themselves, no paintings have corresponded to the ideals of their time as clearly and closely as those of David. And this is probably the fundamental reason 40 years ago I started studying David. He evoked at length uh, David's involvement in the French Revolution and the classical revival with which he is identified. After a thorough account of the early history of the death of Socrates and more briefly of its acquisition by the Metropolitan Museum, Burroughs acknowledges that only David's portraits were prized. But his great efforts those ambitious pondered figure compositions, which were hailed as the renovation of art and which mirror with such fidelity the sentiments and aspirations of their momentous years, these are to a certain extent discredited. Their lack of popularity is a factor in having made possible our acquisition of the one work of the sort which remained in private hands. It is not to be expected that the immediate appreciation of Socrates will be general. Many today are repelled by its austerity, by its smooth, unaccented surface and tight handling, by its didacticism and sheer intellectuality. But others who can overcome the impediments of fashionable taste and are able and willing to consider the temper and the circumstances which gave birth to the picture will appreciate its true and lasting merit. By the mid-1930s, the incentive among private collectors and public museums in America to follow the lead of the Metropolitan Museum was great, and both the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford and the Toledo Museum of Art seized occasions to, acqu to acquire reduced replicas of famous pictures by David proposed by Wildenstein and company. The first institution acquired a version of Brutus, spuriously signed and dated 1789, that is now considered to be an anonymous copy from the period, while the second purchased a well-documented repetition with variants of the Oath of the Horatii, signed and dated 1786. During the 1930s and 1940s, shifts in taste and perception on several front permitted the development of a more favorable, though still highly selective vision of David and more generally of neoclassical painting. The essay, Von David bis de la Croix, published in Leipzig by Walter Friedlander in 1930, was translated into English only in 1952. However, the author settled in the United States from 1935 after fleeing Nazi Germany, first briefly in Philadelphia and then in New York, and disseminated his classificatory schema of the period through his influential teaching at New York University. Around the notion of an ethical classicism, he harnessed the work of a succession of major painters to a smoothly articulate chain of styles. Though David continued to dominate the canonical narrative, the artistic identities of Proudhon, Gérard, Giraudet, Guérin, Gros, and of course Ingres thus came into sharper focus. In 1943, Wildenstein and Company in New York organized a loan exhibition on the theme of the French Revolution for the benefit of French intellectuals in New York, exiled because of the Second World War. Charles Sterling, a scholar born in Warsaw and connected to the Louvre who had fled occupied France, wrote a brief essay on the art of the period. No doubt inspired by repeated study of the death of Socrates, he analyzed David's sculptural style with unprecedented penetration and subtlety in terms that positively reversed the early critique of his figures as painted statues. I quote Sterling, this strange ambiguity of man and statue, 
the stereoscopic relief of each object, the crystalline air like the air of glacial summits, the petrified emotion of faces and gestures, all contribute to the dreamlike atmosphere. No doubt the men of the revolution were fascinated by the inhuman intensity of these paintings." End of quote. Unlike Valentina, as the last remark suggests, Sterling must have been familiar with Marx's analysis. To suggest the strength of ingrained resistance to such positive appreciation of David's vision, one can cite Theodore Rousseau's junior a curator of paintings at the Metropolitan, who in 1954 was still unable to fully support his predecessor's acquisition 20 years earlier. I quote Rousseau, the dominant movement at the beginning of the century, 19th century, was neoclassicism, the leader of which was Jacques-Louis David. His death of Socrates seems to us artificial in its attempt to recreate a classical atmosphere and, its, and in its theatrical postures but it has a sharpness of observation and a strength and freshness in handling that contradict the well-worn criticism of academic painting, criticism so fashionable in our time. Yet in spite of such pockets of resistance, a significant change in the perception of the stylistic characteristics of neoclassical painting paved the way for a post-World War II movement to elevate the status of David in the pantheon of the great masters. While curators of major museums and wealthy collectors were fine-tuning their taste for David, a number of independent-minded art historians in more remote reaches of the art world found in the painting of the turbulent late 18th century rich matter to test their Marxist notions of the bonds connecting art and society. A desire to establish a connection between the imperatives of museums and these scholarly speculations, the first based on artistic appreciation, the second on political conscience, was present in Frederick Antal's Reflections on Classicism and Romanticism in the April 1935 issue of the respected Burlington Magazine. Avowedly written in response to the stylistic categorizations proposed by Friedlander in his 1930 essay, Antal's article proposed an outline for a social history of art that encouraged study of a major artist like David whose works were engaged with their time. In the 1980s, this approach prompted the emergence of a persuasive political hermeneutics that reinforced the story of the artist hero who fought the conservative academy. In university courses, David, like Courbet, thus became the trophy of a militant social history of art. Two, comp two competing conceptions of the classical revival emerged after World War II. The first was Franco-centric, and rested on the taste of collectors and curators. It possessed the authority of Friedlander's and Antal's narratives and presented David as the fountainhead of modern art. As already mentioned, Friedlander's guiding essay was published in English in 1952 at the instigation of his New York University students, among them Robert Rosenblum. The other approach to the period was pan-European with the Italian sculptor Antonio Canova as its supreme incarnation. Foremost, foremost among the scholars who developed this view, Anthony Clark and Hugh Honor claimed the centrality of the Roman artistic scene and embraced British and German manifestations of the neoclassical style on equal footing with the Parisian works. Those who define those who defended the preeminence of France tended to isolate painting from the other arts, while those who defended an international style correlated paintings, sculpture, architecture, and household furnishings. More intense study of works by David and his contemporaries led to the need for a closer examination of the paintings assigned to him. For over a year, from January 1965, 
The Burlington Magazine published an exchange of letters between Robert Rosenblum, member of the Princeton University faculty, and Otto Wittmann, director of the Toledo Museum of Art, as to who actually painted the 1786 repetition of the Oath of the Horatii signed by David. The disagreement hinged on the participation of David's pupils in the execution of the master's paintings. More generally, Rosenblum's rigorous appraisal of the documentation marked the advent of a new generation of scholars who, in the wake of Gaston Brière in France during the 1940s and 50s, were more critical in their evaluation of attributions to David, an orientation soon relayed by the scrupulous research of Antoine Schnapper in France. With a wry sense of humor, Rosenblum published articles titled, for example, in 1968, Who Painted David's Ugolino? A radically gloomy but less than virtuoso picture he reattributed to a pupil on the basis of a description in the Livret of the Salon of 1800. The corpus of paintings at one time attributed to David, a good number bearing a fake signature, is staggering. For a long period, between the time of documentary consideration of his work around 1860 to around 1960, when the names of his contemporaries and pupils influenced by his style were all but forgotten, any painting remotely neoclassical was added to the corpus of his work. In 1883, shortly after the publication of his thoroughly documented biography of his grandfather, Jules David felt it necessary to edit a brochure denouncing the proliferation of false attributions. In a comprehensive exhibition of French portraits mounted in Paris that year, 1883, claiming to present 19 works by David, he considered that only four were truly by him. In 1930, a majority of the illustrations in Richard Cantonelli's monograph reproduce paintings today considered not to be by David. Even as recently as 2005, the Musée Jacques Marandré in Paris mounted a Jacques-Louis David exhibition with about 40 paintings, and in my opinion, over a third raised questions as to their status. The problem, of course, is not proper to David, as anyone who keeps up with the scholarship on Caravaggio, Rembrandt, or Courbet is acutely aware. As we have seen, a number of attributions have been abandoned, and we have gained a much firmer idea of his manner and of his artistic personality. Some pictures with former attributions to David have recovered their true paternity, and as we saw in many instances, their maternity. Others survive uncomfortably with their anonymity, reminders of a curatorial fault, rather like in former times, children begot out of wedlock and kept out of sight. In light of my bumpy narrative evoking widely different appreciations of David's art, I would like to conclude by addressing the possibility of your taste for his work today. From the outset, you have gathered that there are legitimate arguments to want to shy away from his paintings. At the same time, though I have only shown reproductions, you may have sensed that their pictorial qualities can produce intense visual pleasure. Even more than that, they can provide access to uplifting connections with the past. As in the 19th century, the freshness of his early portraits remains probably the easiest point of entry. Also, the unfinished state of a number of his paintings has been filtered through the criteria of spontaneity and immediacy so valued in modern art. Some scholars have even gone so far as to interpret his signature scumbling with the brush as a deliberate suspension of finish and an energizing process. For we know that David disapproved of the high finish dear to such pupils as Giraudet and Ingres. Comparing the portraits by David and Ingres, currently hung in the same room of the West Building, is an enlightening experience. Hang hides his brushwork. The art, like the man, is all repression. While close inspection of David's brushwork reveals the vibrancy of his handling, a reminder that he emerged as a young painter within the ambiance of Boucher and Fragonard. 
Once once has grasped the characteristics of what, what I might call David's touch, spotting it, is, spotting it in his paintings down to the last productions of the exiled regicide gives immense visual pleasure. On any visit to the vast Salle d'Aru in the Louvre, where David's large format pictures hang, one can observe that the crowds gather in front of his coronation of Napoleon and Josephine. The staging that impressed the emperor, who reportedly declared to David, one can step into your picture, continues to be effective. But one should not miss in this court pageant the gallery of physiognomies it offers, whose scope and penetration are worthy of a Balzac novel. David felt that as a painter, it was his mission to leave for posterity the image of French society whose supreme accomplishment was the revolution. The four paintings with scenes from ancient history, here you see Leonidas on one side and the Sabines in the distance on the other side of the coronation and, and um, Brutus and, and the Othoratia on the opposite wall. The four paintings with scenes from ancient history that hang nearby, the Othoratii, Brutus, and the Sabines, and Leonidas, do not, do not summon the same amount of attention on the part of museum visitors today. This is partly because they call for more historical and visual knowledge to sustain looking. The Horatii and Brutus are relatively dark pictures, as critics complained in the 1780s when they were first exhibited. However, it is quite evident that like the Sabines and Leonidas, they are sorely in need of cleaning and visually dulled by their condition. One must strain to perceive form and color through a dirty and discolored varnish that dims considerably their potency and subtlety. I have noticed that when visiting the Louvre, I, step, I stop less often in front of them than in the, 17, in the 1970s and 1980s. The death of Socrates in pristine state by comparison, though much smaller, gives one an idea as to how this impressive quartet of pictures should look. When I pressed the question recently, I was told that since practically all of the pictures in the Salle d'Aru are in need of cleaning, if one, if one of them recovers its original lum luminosity and freshness, the others will appear even gloomier than they do presently. <laughs> For obvious reasons and also by tradition, the museum proceeds with extreme caution in such matters, and colleagues in charge at the Louvre are understandably hesitant. The risk is always that more than varnish might be removed during the restoration, but should, should this justify maintaining the veil that time has placed over the painter's work? Such temporization is a kind of slow death for the artist's reputation and is less respectful than it might seem. Indeed, it would be profoundly exciting to see restored this quintessence of David's life work in time for the bicentennial of his death in 2025. Such an enterprise holds the promise of a visual revelation that I am certain will enhance even further his current stature and appeal. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.